This week on the podcast, we have Christine Einar's daughter. And again, I apologise for my poor pronunciation. Christine was born in Iceland and has lived in Ireland and Denmark. She is a public health advocate and an entrepreneur, and particularly she's now focused on mental health and adolescence. She's founded a number of social enterprises and an international humanitarian charity, as she will explain. In Christine's own words, an entrepreneur at heart, I founded Humanity for Good, Ireland Iceland Travelled and Nordic Trailblazers, an online education and consultation platform. She's very conscious of her historical and cultural background and tells us a story of an event that happened over a thousand years ago that still resonates today. Christine relates the story of her personal journey and finally plays out with a song that is close to her with a very special personal connection. You're definitely going to enjoy this. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, Digital First Selling. During these times of COVID and falling telco sales, Digital First Selling is the answer to new customer acquisition, increasing revenues and cost reduction. If you are a telco, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, we have the ideal Digital First Selling as a Service solution for you. The Netzer Digital First Selling solution enables you to sell and onboard remotely. You will integrate with your BSS and OSS systems and with Salesforce, and we meet all regulatory requirements. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com so that we can understand your issues and provide you with the best solution. Welcome to the podcast this week. Um, we have Christine, and again, this being the second week that I've got an Icelandic woman, I'm not going to attempt her family name, but she will explain it in a second. But Christine is from Iceland, has lived in Ireland, and is now living in Denmark, and is a, a, health, a public health advocate, but a whole lot more than that. So like, we'll get into that. First of all, Christine, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Pat. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And maybe you can explain my rudeness about your surname because I know I would mess up. Oh, <laughs> everybody messes itself. Um, um, my surname would be Einar's daughter. And mm. like every Icelandic woman, I am uh, I am daughter of Einar. So Einar would be my father's name. And mm-hmm. then I am his daughter. So that's how we do it in Iceland. No family names as such. Yeah, I found that fascinating, to be honest, and it never occurred to me that that was uh, the name was generated every generation, shall we say. But yeah. Now, you, you have a wide background and we were trying, I was trying to, to be honest, put a few labels on you at the beginning and I sort of failed in my mind. So, but you, you're, you're a health advocate, you've started a humanitarian charity, but also you're interested in female leadership. So maybe just tell us a little bit about how you started off. Yeah, well, so my my education is I'm an occupational therapist and I worked as such. Well, after the, my graduation, I got a job as one of the directors of the, our national university hospital in Iceland mm-hmm. and worked there for 15 years. But then I felt the urge to add to my education. So I did a master's in public health science 
And then later, when I moved to Ireland, where I lived for many years in Dublin, uh, mm. I uh, went to Trinity and added another master's to my education, which was in race, ethnicity and conflict studies. Okay. So, so that's sort of my background. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And you were saying that when you were a health advocate, you got involved in not only Icelandic public health, but international public health. Yeah. So I, yeah, you can say that. So I have, when I was working for the National University Hospital, obviously you, you, that, that's, I mean, we are 360,000 people. I think there were 330,000 mm -hmm. at the time. And so you cover the whole country. So obviously that you have to have a broad spectrum of knowledge. Mm -hmm. It might not be the deepest, but you have to have a broad spectrum of knowledge. So alongside with my job, I was advisor to municipalities on public health and, and uh, mental health uh, issues and all sorts of, of projects that I was involved with. And I uh, also was consulting to the Icelandic government or the Ministry of Welfare and Health mm -hmm. uh, on several projects. And then when I moved abroad, uh, for instance, in, I was working at the Department of Medicine in UCD uh, doing research, and I was working freelance in, in Ireland doing research as well, but all, you know, on, on uh, like social uh, public health issues. And, okay. and in Denmark, it would be the same. I, I moved here to work uh, as a lecturer at one of the university and also do research and I've been an advisor and consultant to uh, several Danish municipalities okay and, so and I still am yeah so you've an international queer, uh, career and um, quite a wide remit in public health but why how did you get interested in this did you know from the very beginning this is what you wanted to do and uh, how how does that relate to uh, we were talking earlier you yeah. know being a woman in Iceland and and what that means in terms of culture? Absolutely. I knew it from the beginning. I grew up in a small town uh, outside of uh, the capital, Reykjavik. And the trend was uh, we started working from an early age in those days. And from an early age, I knew I wanted to work with people. Most of my friends, they went to work in the fish factory that absolutely didn't interest me at all, even <laughs> though they made much more money than I did. So I begged, I begged my mom's friend uh, who ran a nursing home in our hometown oh. if I could come and work there. Mm -hmm. And at the wee age of 14, I was, you know, sweeping the floors, doing everything, you know, <laughs> and talking to the elderly. And I absolutely loved it. And I, that was sort of my go-to job with uh, when I was in school and, mm. and college. So I knew from a very early age that I wanted to work with people, not fish. That yeah. was... <laughs> it so, sounds more attractive um, when you put it that way. <laughs> well, some would argue. It would <laughs> but I mean, for me, that was absolutely... I've never, you know, shied away from that. That's mm -hmm. basically what I want to do. Okay. And... In, what was your first role? Was it in the, the, the public health service in Iceland? And yeah, well, uh, the department I ran, I was actually the first uh, occupational therapist to be hired 
uh, to establish occupational therapy uh, in, the, in an isolated nursing home. Mm-hmm. And that was completely new. It was around the year 2000. And with my mind, I'm always an entrepreneur at heart. So I established a service called, well, it's named after Eden Alternative, it's called actually. And it's a service where you work with uh, animals, you work with plants, and you work with children. So you bring that into the nursing home. It was a time when everything was very institutionalized. Yeah. Uh, uh, in you know the whole of the world, and it was a time when we were approaching uh, things and making it more, more like a home uh, that it wasn't just an institution. So that was sort of my first job after graduation, and then uh, I got the job at the National University Hospital, and that was obviously much larger role mm-hmm. uh, where I was in charge of the occupational therapy department at two of the university hospital acute services. Okay, so, so you, de- you developed the occupational therapy. I, I'm not an expert, then, but it's, it's become more important in the last 20 years. And you, yeah. developed, you developed a service and expanded the experiences of people who normally might be, shall we say, warehoused? Yeah. If that's the right term? Mm. So, okay. Yeah. And, and, and also at the university hospital, I mean, and it was, it has developed a lot. Uh, occupational therapy is, I still today in everything I do, I'm always an occupational therapist by heart because I mean, every, everything you do, every activity you do matters and especially in uh, rehabilitation. And, and so uh, that will always be sort of yeah, my hardly. motivation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, did you, how did you get into international humanitarian charities? So when I was working at the, at the university hospital, I participated in uh, both conferences and I was a speaker myself. We did a, a lot of research and, you know, sort of worked uh, with the ALS team of, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, at the university hospital. And that brought me for example, to conferences all over the world. And uh, if we talk about how I got into, for example, humanitarian work, at the time I was an an advisor to the Ministry of Welfare, where we were trying to expand the services to those who were disabled and uh, wheelchair bound it. Mm -hmm. And one of the services we were looking at is the choice yeah, it's every person, person choice to prolong their lives by cho- choosing a life in a respirator. And Denmark has been, you know, has had this opportunity or, or possibility for many, many years. And Japan also, they prolong their, the life of the disabled by, uh, you know, sure. giving them yeah. this choice. And, and there are obviously a lot of uh, ethical questions. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was in Japan with one of my clients or patients and we were talking to people from Mongolia and Mm. we came from Iceland and this was in 2006 or seven. And, and he told us basically that uh, Mongolia didn't even have a wheelchair at the time. There was no infrastructure, no services for the disabled. And we were coming from Iceland where we had 
everything. And I, we in Iceland, because it's a welfare country, like all the Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. so the government, you, you, you through your tax uh, payments, you, you are equipped with the best top of the line wheelchairs and all the equipments and you use them for three years and then you are entitled to get a new one mm-hmm. but the old one isn't broken or anything so what to do with that so I knew of this problem because I was dealing with the system every day so we made a deal with uh, the Icelandic insurance fund that we inherited all the uh, assistive devices they weren't using so would this be crutches and wheelchairs? Yeah, and wheelchairs and relators and, and bathing equipments, hoists. Oh, there's a whole range of stuff. Basically everything, hospital beds. And, and uh, I founded this uh, humanitarian organization called Humani- Humanity for Good. And it was always our plan to work with uh, patient organization and with the government. Mm-hmm. So and we did. So, so we worked with ALS uh, Association of Mongolia, and then we worked with the Ministry of Welfare in Mongolia, and we managed to ship a forty feet container fully loaded with uh, assistive devices to Mongolia, and then we went along, me and a team of two nurses who were specialized in respirators and uh, actually a TV crew who made a documentary about this uh, mm-hmm. journey and techni- technicians who, who help uh, with all the equipments. And the goal was to help the, them develop an assistive device center. Sure. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, the certain, well, the leadership you showed to do that and also the that you were able to organize a system to work with you. And clearly there was yeah. a surplus in one part of the world and a def, you know, deficit uh, in the other. Absolutely. But, so ALS is a wasting disease. Lou Gehrig's disease, I think, in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, so the, it's a muscle, I think, it's, it's a, I don't know, it's a muscle wasting disease. It is, it is a neurological disease. And, and uh, you are giving, when you get the diagnosis, you're giving between two to five years. It depends on where it starts in the body mm-hmm. uh, to live. And uh, so uh, obviously the, there's a, a quick decline in, in quality of life. And yeah. it's, it's a disease that affects the whole family. I've been working actually with this disease in particular. We also worked in Latvia, and which is a European country, but still. But so, yeah, it's a, it's a horrible disease, actually. Uh, one, yeah, mm. and it affects the whole family because people usually diagnose around the age of 40. So they're, they have young children. And, and Yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. terrible. And um, you also, how, we were talking a little bit earlier about the history of women in Iceland. A lot of them came from slaves from maybe this part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, I wonder if, I wonder what, did it contribute to the culture of strong women in Iceland? Or is, I is think I, so. Sorry, Iceland must be a tough place to live. And I don't mean that in terms no, of... No, um, no, I- it is. You're right. I mean, it is Matter. a tough place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, now. I mean, I. I obviously know Ireland fairly well, living there, and and uh, even though I lived in Dublin, I was I spent a lot of time at the west coast, and there are a lot of similarities, and also you know with the history of the countries, even though we are also culturally, and I think that's just because of the religion. I mean, you're Catholic, we're not, and and sort of. That develops a, a, a different culture. But yes, you're right. I mean, I think 
if you if you look at our DNA, then uh, we have this company in Iceland called Decode, and they do DNA research. And what they found out a few years ago that 63% of our female DNA uh, actually comes from Irish ancestry and 20% of the males, the rest would be Norway or Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started, I mean, I am by no means an expert. I have to say that, but I started, I find it super interesting because when I lived in Dublin, I learned about that Dublin was founded by Vikings mm-hmm. and uh, one of your kings, King Olaf the White, he was married, it was around 850 or something, 53 maybe. And he was married to this lady called Oed the Deep-Minded. So when he uh, died in a battle, she fled to Scotland and there she built this Viking ship in Iceland, we call it Knörr. And she built it in secrecy in one of the forests. And then from Orkney in Scotland, she sailed to what we believe uh, the west coast of Ireland and took some slaves. And at the time, you have to think, I mean, she female leadership we don't know much about it uh, but she had 20 men under her and they all respected her so uh, she was a very strong-willed lady and she when she sailed to Iceland with uh, with the slaves uh, we believe now are from the west coast of Ireland and and took uh, land in the west of Iceland and then set them free and gave them land and she was this lady known to be really, really strong-minded and a yeah, strong-willed w- woman. And mm-hmm. I think because later on, and we can all trace her our yeah, uh, DNA to her, and later, I mean, Icelandic women, they had to run the farm. They had to, because, the, yeah. and then they were married to sailors and they were off, you know, to uh, of, yeah, yeah for many many yeah, months yeah, and so they were yeah. basically running the show by themselves so i think uh that's sort of the core in why we are so independent and and why yeah. leadership in iceland uh, female leadership is just comes so natural to us yeah no that's really interesting and i've no doubt even even the fact we're talking about that today says something about it came down to the culture and um, mm. the effects attitude. No, that, that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I think slaves were the were commonplace. Everybody took slaves. and uh, yeah. But the fact that she set them free and gave them land even shows a certain vision beyond. Um, Absolutely. And, and yeah. you know, I think also, I mean, if we go to today's or even a few years back, I mean, also our culture in Iceland, we make it very easy for women to have access to education and to be able to work and uh, you know childcare and school system and you know everything contributes to uh, the fact to equality yeah. for everyone i mean right. well, that's, uh, that's that's really interesting christine what what are you doing today you're you're a lecturer in in denmark and you also yeah, well, I, I actually uh, stopped being a lecturer. I, I was a bit fed up with the, the academia. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, always having to apply for my own salary uh, by funding. <laughs> That's the reality of it. Um, so I, I today I 
I have my own company called Nordic Trailblazers, and uh, we do language teaching. We, for instance, uh, teach Icelandic to Icelandic children living abroad. It's so, so important to, yeah, continue to, to uh, you know, keep this language. It's one of the oldest language in the world, and only like 300,000 people talk, uh, speak Icelandic. Mm-hmm. So we do that, and then we have we do courses in all sort of activities related to mental health and well-being. And then the third part, which is what I do the most, is that I, I am a consulting specialist. I work for Cara Connect, a mental health platform or a, you know a digital platform. I work. I have been working as a consultant for several Danish municipalities. In, for instance, one project related to old age uh, social exclusion, especially with men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my focus is on mental health and well-being, really today on every level, if I can okay. say so. So yeah. your 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 mission continues after all those years. You're you're still in the same area. I am. I and I think I I will always be here. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, Christine, that's been brilliant. I mean, was, you have a very unusual career, unusual background, and it shows your your stamina and your focus uh, shows throughout your career as you've made things better for people. I think it might be a broad way to put it. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's always been my drive to to you know make the world a little better if I can. Well, I think you have, to be honest. Uh-huh. And, and on this podcast, you get to nominate the playout tune. So if you'd like to tell us what you have. So it's a very, it's a song very close to my heart, as uh, it is a song written or performed by my partner. Oh. Uh, yeah, his, his name is Richard Scobie. Mm-hmm. And the song is called Otro Dia. And Otro Dia means in Spanish, another day. Mm-hmm. And it is, I felt it was when I was looking at the songs, uh, what I wanted to, I had several songs in mind, but this one is really close to my heart because, you know, in the, the situation we are, we find ourselves in now in the pandemic and people are, and that, that this is something that I experience every day. So many people are losing hope and the, the declined mental health we are facing so this song uh, is all about hope and getting caught up in the moment. Uh, so many people are overwhelmed and it's just a beautiful reminder that uh, this feeling and this situation we're in now, it will pass yeah. and tomorrow is another day. Okay, that's brilliant. And I think we, we can all do with uh, hope. So that's a brilliant choice. Thanks, Thank Christine. Thank you. Okay, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Another day has passed me by Another dream has waved goodbye And though I know it doesn't show I'm nowhere to go Oh, I Don't you worry about me Cause out there's gotta be something better Strong, something is bound to come my way any day now. 
another love is taking flight Well, that's right, cause I'll survive And though I know it doesn't show Cause she cut me slow Don't you worry about me Cause out there's gotta be something better Yeah, I I found a way to be strong Something is bound to come my way Any day Be strong, something is bound to come my way. 